Uh, if you would, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 18 this morning. Before we go to God's Word, let's go again to our God and ask Him to speak to us through His Word. Now, Father God, we thank You that You, in Your magnificence and Your holiness and Your great transcendent holiness, chose to reveal Yourself to us in Your Word. That You've actually given us speech that we may know You. We pray that You would open this text up to us by Your Holy Spirit that you would transform us by your power, that we would come to know Christ better and be more like him. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin out. You have, you have your own translation of the text in there. We're going to be looking at that a, a couple times today, so make sure you have that there. The rest of you, again, we're looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And uh, before we get there... Um, I played basketball when I was in school. I played until about eighth grade because we lived in Wyoming, and then we moved to Memphis, and people in the South were a lot better at basketball, and I just saw the writing on the wall and didn't even try to go out for the team anymore. But I was that guy. Maybe if you play ball, you know this guy. I was that guy who um, didn't practice at home. I showed up. I worked hard. Coach yelled at me. I'd work harder. I had some talent. But I was never really that good. But I had my growth spurt early. And I could jump. So at CY Junior High School in Casper, Wyoming, that covered a multitude of sins. And I was on the A-team basketball, seventh grade. It was great. But, again, those of you who play basketball, you probably know this guy too. Not being that good, I, I didn't use skill. I used size and aggressiveness. So in other words, I... I was a fowler a lot. I was kind of like, I, you know, you know, some guys in our church play ball occasionally and occasionally they have injuries and they seem to be quite malicious. I think there's some fowlers there, so they, they know what I'm talking about. Um, I played full contact basketball and I was always in foul trouble by the third quarter. It's like every single game. And so more often than I, can, than I would say not, in fact, coach would have to Bench me in the third quarter, and then start of the fourth quarter, it'd go something like this. Sawyers, come here. That little guard is just killing us. If he gets near you, do your thing. <laughs> I, I was like, but coach, I, I don't want to foul out. And he'd always say it the same way. He goes, Sawyers, sometimes you got to take one for the team. I was like, okay, coach, okay, coach. So I'd go and do my very, I wasn't a Christian, so, you know, it's okay, right? It's freebie. I'd go do my nice sportsman-like thing and get him out of the game, and I'd be out of the game, and I don't know if it ever helped, but anyway, I did it. Well, today in this text, we're going to see that Paul realizes, you know what Jesus has said? Paul, sometimes you've got to take one for the team. If you remember what, where we've been, Paul has prayed for this group of believers at Philippi. Paul has, has he wants them to know what really matters so that they would live out together what really matters. And now Paul is demonstrating that exact prayer in his life. In the midst of his imprisonment, in the midst of his disappointment, he focuses on what really matters, the advancement of the gospel. And that gives him joy. So having prayed for them to do this, Paul now shows them how to focus on what's important, how to keep the advancement of the gospel more important than our personal trials or personal issues. So if you would, would you look with me together as we look at um, Philippians chapter 1, verses, 1 or verses 12 through 18. 
This is God's Word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. And this is God's Word. Well, here's what we're going to talk about today. I want to give you the theme sentence. Use this at family worship, perhaps later at lunch when you're talking about the sermon. You might want to remember this throughout the week as you're trying to pray through what God is teaching you today. And here's what we're talking about today. The joy of seeing the gospel win is worth the pain of taking one for Christ's team. See, we need to know that. Because the gospel makes our difficulties with the world, it makes our conflicts within the church opportunities for joy when we remember that seeing the gospel win gives us joy. So let's jump in and see how he does this. First thing Paul talks about is the gospel and our difficulties. If you remember, Paul is writing from jail. This is not your typical missionary report. But he's showing them what the gospel is doing while he's in prison because he believes the gospel can do that in Philippi. And I believe the gospel can do that in Orangeburg. So all this stuff that's happened to Paul, if you know the story in Acts, the arrest in Jerusalem, the various hearings he's had before different officials, the transport to Rome, the harrowing shipwreck along the way, his current house arrest, God has used all those difficulties to advance the gospel, Paul says. I want to remind you what we said when we first looked at Philippians. The epistles were a standard template of a letter in Roman culture. They're not a unique New Testament thing. So we have epistles archaeologists have found, and they still have them. You can see. So we know at this point in an epistle, after you've kind of said hi, like Paul has done, after you've kind of introduced yourself, like Paul did, after you kind of do uh, thanks to your audience, like Paul did, and after you kind of do either a well-wish or a, or a prayer, as Paul has done, now it's time for you to talk about yourself, to tell them what's really going on and why you're writing them this letter. You're supposed to tell them how you're doing. But Paul doesn't do that. Instead, Paul talks about how the gospel is doing. And they would have picked up on that and gone, well, Paul's talking about the gospel, not himself here. He really wants us to get this. And Paul says, guess what, guys? The gospel's doing great. The messenger may be bound, but the message is unbound. It is going forward. It is flourishing. The gospel is at work in Rome, and it's at work in Paul. And remember this, Paul, sometimes we, we tend to think the people in Scripture are somehow better than us, or they think different than us, or they have little halos over their head when they walk around for some reason. We think that. But Paul was a flesh and blood man just like us. Paul was the brightest student under the best-known rabbi in the world at that time. He was a rising star in Judaism, even 
pagan archaeologists who study Roman culture and they love the New Testament epistles because they're such prime examples of actual Roman letters. I mean, they don't believe them, but they like the literary format. They admit this, that Paul is probably one of the most intelligent men in the world of his day. And here he is in prison. It would be natural for him to be a little embarrassed, for him to be a little bit, God, you gave me all this potential and you wanted me to end up here. It doesn't make sense. He's chained to a guard. He's, it's natural for him to be a little sheepish about his loss of reputation. But to see the gospel advance, Paul is able to take that and he takes it. He takes that one for the team and he does it out of love for Christ. I want you to get that because, again, don't think of Paul as this super spiritual guy who has no problems. No, it, stuff hurts him just like it hurts us. And he's very sanctified and so he deals with it, but it still hurts. There's a great story out there. A couple movies have been made of it. A couple movies plagiarizing it have been made of it. But it's a fabulous book, and I would highly recommend that you at some point in your life read Pride and Prejudice. It's outstanding. Young men, especially those of you going off to college, let me give you a secret. Pride and Prejudice is the key to a woman's heart. I'm telling you, you want, to, you want to sail above all those guys who are cooler and richer and good-looking, which was most of the guys in my case. Pride and Prejudice is your answer. Trust me on this one. So anyway, in the story, at the main character, male-wise, the great man in the story is a guy named Mr. Darcy. And Mr. Darcy, at one point in the story, takes a huge hit to his reputation. And he also has to pay out a lot of money at one point to, to quietly, even anonymously, fix a situation that if this situation became known, it would embarrass the family of the woman that he loves, who doesn't love him at this point in the story. But he does it anyway. He does it gladly. He willingly pay, pays that price because he loves her and he wants to. That's what Paul does for the Savior he loves. He takes this price. He pays it willingly. At the end of the book of Acts, we see Paul is chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He's living in a house he's not allowed to leave that he has to pay for, not the Roman government. He's able to receive visitors. And we see in the book of Acts, you can read it yourself, it ends here, that these Jewish leaders from Rome are coming to him and he's preaching the gospel, trying to convince them to become Christians. And here's these Jewish men who know who Paul is and it's rather embarrassing. But Paul says the difficulty is worth it because people are starting to get it. He's only in Christian because he's a he's only in prison, excuse me, because he's a Christian is what he says here in the text. Paul says Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord. So he's in prison and his guards are starting to go this guy's not a real criminal. He's not a rebel. He's not a murderer. He's not an insurrectionist. He's just a scholarly guy who is a weird religion. I don't, it's not my thing, but he's not a real criminal. Paul says they're starting to get it. I'm only in jail because I'm a Christian. The Jewish leaders, they're starting to get it. Paul's not a threat. Paul's kind of unjustly in jail. So people are starting to think a little highly of Paul is what he's saying. So he has this restored reputation and it starts to give him joy, but he says more importantly, he sees the gospel expanding in his difficulties. Boys and girls, I want you to understand what I'm talking about here. Would you look with me, please, at your, at your translation? Look at verses 13 and 14. Here's what Paul says is going on. He says this. He says, 
all the soldiers guarding me and all my visitors know that I'm only in jail because I'm a Christian. And my handcuffs have made many of the Christians in Rome brave. They are fearlessly speaking God's word. You see, boys and girls, God doesn't really need stuff when his people believe him. Even when it hurts a bit to do so, God uses that in our lives. Maybe at school, sometimes the kids make fun of you for doing the right thing, and that hurts. But God can use that in your life. He can can bring you joy in that even when it's hard. And for the rest of us, I mean, look what God did to the Christians in Rome. Once they realized that Paul was jailed simply for being a Christian, not a rebel, not a murderer, says they were no longer afraid. They were bold. They were fearless. They were fearless in risking their reputations and their freedom to make Christ known. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? You would think that if Rome has decided to jail people just for being a Christian, you'd think that they'd be, okay, time to hush up, right? But they said, well, if we're going to be jailed for being a Christian, we might as well earn it. So they went out, and Paul says, the gospel's spreading all over Rome. People are preaching everywhere. Oh, you see, once we Christians start to live for Christ's priorities instead of our priorities, he gives us boldness. And in that boldness, we have joy. See, it's the answer to the fear you and I have. You know, that temptation to keep a low profile, play it safe. Don't be too upfront about Jesus. Don't be the religious guy at work, please. And all that's from concern for our reputation, what people think about us. But Paul's saying, once you let that go, Once you live for Christ's priorities, he gives you bold joy to be his witness. Once we say, I will live for Christ's priorities, not my own, we become the witnesses that deep down most of us wish we were. That's what happened in Rome. Paul says that the Christians started preaching on the streets. So get this, the Christians are preaching all over the streets of Rome. Paul's in prison testifying to the rotating guard who guards him, and these are the crack troops, the, 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 the imperial guard, the praetorian guard is what they're called. They were 9,000 strong Caesar's personal force. Think of the secret service plus the delta force put into one. That's what these guys were. Crack troops, highest trained, highest paid, loyal to Caesar, not necessarily loyal to the republic, loyal to Caesar. And so Paul's preaching to all of them. They're escorting Paul to different levels of court hearings. He's testifying to all those people. So God's got this situation where the powers of Rome and the people of Rome are all of a sudden getting this bold proclamation of his gospel. And Paul sees that that's what's happening. And the joy of seeing the gospel expand is so worth the pain of him taking one for Jesus' team, of being stuck in prison. I know you're not in prison. I also know your life's not easy. Let me ask you something. Do you have this kind of hope and boldness in your difficulties? Do you have the hope that something grand, something more beautiful, something bigger than you will come about through your difficulties? Or when life gets hard, do you Unfortunately, what, mo- what mostly we do, do you kind of just grab a straw and suck it up and judge those who can't deal as well as you can because that's really the only way you know how to cope? See, when you're part of Christ's family, 
when he calls you to take one for the team, he promises to make it up to you, to make it worth it in the end. Now, whatever it is you're living for right now, whatever team you're on, does, does it promise to do that? Has it fulfilled that promise yet? Because the gospel can. See, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the gospel can be yours. The good news can be yours. And it's powerful in your difficulties to bring you joy. Oh, I hope you believe that. Because the gospel's there in our difficulties. But you know what? It's also there in our church conflicts. Now, I know this, we have no reference for understanding this, so I'll try to make this more clear to you. Occasionally, sometimes, in other churches, Christian A and Christian B, they don't always get along. I know, it's crazy, it's weird, but, and they can sometimes have conflicts. And then sometimes, Christian A doesn't like Pastor A, typically because Pastor A says or does something foolish, and so we've got to fix it. Again, I know not here, but in other churches. And so Paul's kind of dealing with those church conflicts like that. Because, again, it may not be a Trinity problem, but it was a Philippian problem. And so Paul says it was also a Rome church problem as well. But the gospel can advance even through the silliness of church conflict. Look with me in your text at verse 15. Look what he says there. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. Some there are those bold Christians from verse 14 he was rejoicing about. These are not false teachers. These are fearless, emboldened Christians messing up Rome for the gospel. Yet Paul says here they're preaching out of envy and rivalry. Let me make that real simple for you. I want, let's all look together at the kids' translation of verse 15. It says this says, some of them don't like me, and they preach Christ to make me look bad. The rest preach Christ for the right reason. Boys and girls, let's help your parents understand this. Have you ever played a game at school with a ball hog? You know, that person who won't pass the ball, but they keep it. They, 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 they want to score more than they want, want the team to win, and so they won't share it around. That's what's happening to the Apostle Paul right now. Maybe you can explain that to mom and dad later this afternoon. Because remember last week what we talked about? We said we have to understand and then live out what's really important, what really matters. And so here's Paul. He's, he shows that he and the Roman Christians need that same prayer. He has to deal with people who have an agenda. Paul has to put aside his personal priorities, his personal preferences for what really matters. And he's showing them, I need this prayer as much as I pray it for y'all. He has to put aside what's important. Last week we had our... Uh, Senior Citizens Appreciation Banquet, I was sitting with David Jackson, our speaker, the new uh, director of uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship, and he asked me, he goes, is there any kind of ministerial alliance going on in, in, in Orangeburg that you know of? I said, you know, I, I, I'm not really sure if there is one. I, I highly doubt it, and, you know, really, unless it's really gospel-focused, those things never work. And he goes, yeah, I know, you pastors are kind of lone wolves, aren't you? I said, well, it's not so much that we're lone wolves as much as if you're not really focused on the gospel, 
you can't help but see yourself in competition with other pastors, and so it just is a bad recipe. And he goes, oh, I never thought about it that way before. You see, when, at my previous church in suburban St. Louis, there was, a, there was a gospel, or not, excuse me, there was a minister's alliance, and all we did was this social justice stuff, which is great, but you know, if you give someone a sandwich and, they, and their belly's full, that's great, but guess what? They're going to have a full belly in hell. And so me and uh, there was an Acts 29 church and the pastor of First Baptist Church, we were much more evangelical, conservative, you know, those right-wing zealots that the news always talks about. We were like, yeah, but shouldn't we, like, give them the gospel and a sandwich? And on the other side of the table, they were like, oh, we might offend them. And so anyway, yeah, you know how that, how that goes. Anyway, it didn't work. So me and the Acts 29 guy and the First Baptist guy, we formed our own ministerial alliance, and we started doing stuff for the gospel, and stuff started happening. But even in that situation, I had people in my church, and I bet the other guys did too, saying, Pastor, why are we extending all this effort to do these big programs where we work together when these people probably aren't going to come to our church, they're going to go to their church? See, there's something like that going on here in the Apostle Paul. They're, they're competing against each other. They're like, yeah, we're all together on the gospel, but I want to build my subgroup of the gospel. I don't want to just build the whole team. But it's even worse. Look with me at verse 17. It's even, it's even worse than that. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, the former, this is the people preaching from rivalry, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. That's pretty bad. They want to hurt Paul. And Paul knows it. You see, Paul was famous. Even in his own lifetime, Paul was recognized as uniquely used of the gospel. In fact, in Paul's lifetime, it's either 1 Peter or 2 Peter, I should know this, I'm sorry, actually says Paul's letters are scripture. That's a pretty big deal. Paul was the man in the early church. But see, Paul didn't have to be the man. It was not all about Paul, but it was all about Jesus. But the problem was there were some preachers out there who desperately wanted to be the man. And they projected that desire onto Paul, they assumed, because he was the man, he wanted to be the man, he wanted to stay the man. And so they were like, hey, if my status grows, it takes the man down a notch. So I'm going to preach even more so I can take Paul down. Because he's out of the game, he can't do it. See what Paul says, Paul's not in it for Paul. Paul doesn't have to be the man. Because living for Christ's priorities gives Paul a different perspective. He can have joy even while other Christians are having success. And in that success, actively trying to hurt him. Because seeing the gospel advance is worth taking one for the team. How many of you are bothered right now that it's other Christians still? I, I want to be candid. There, there was part of me this week as I was preparing this and studying this. I desperately wanted to find a way. Maybe I can find some obscure Greek translation of these words or something to make them false teachers, to make them not be Christians. But anything, right? But it's not in the text. You can't get around it. But then again, is it really that hard to believe that Christians would do this to fellow Christians? I mean, this very issue is why Christ had to pray for unity in his church on his last night on earth. We Christians have a tendency, under the umbrella of saved by grace, through faith, 
we have a tendency to emphasize an aspect of the ministry or an aspect of the faith, and then we just can't help it, but we tend to judge those who don't share the same emphasis. Me, for one, I really think worship is important. Two-thirds of my week, week in and week out, is focused on the content and execution of these 75 minutes. Anybody else in the room have a two-thirds ratio like that? I, yeah, I didn't think so. It's natural to be kind of be a priority for me, isn't it? And there's a part of my heart that when I see people who I love, fellow believers, people I've taken a vow to help care for, there's a tendency when I see a disdain for God's worship, an unappreciation of it, there, I'm tempted to judge you, and I'm sorry. I'm working on it. But maybe you're in the choir. If you're in the choir, you tend to think the choir is kind of important. Y'all spend a lot of time working to give us the excellent music you do. And when other people don't appreciate the choir as much as you think they could, I, you're tempted. I know. It's all right. Fellowship committee. Probably one of the, a very hardworking committee. When they, they put hours in on these activities, and then when people don't show up, it's absolutely understandable. Isn't it? People, they'd be a little frustrated at you for not showing up. We could go on. Student ministry. We, you know, worship team. Women's ministries, you, you name it. If it's your love and your passion, you're going to judge people who don't share your passion. In fact, when you think about it, it's a wonder there's not more conflict in the church. But see, that's the amazing thing about the gospel. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus alone, when we take off our jersey, put on his jersey, he gives us this wonderful freedom to focus on his goals. His personal mission, his calling, if you will. And so we can step back and say, I am called to be passionate about this. And you may not be. And I'm okay with that because I'm living for what Jesus told me to do. Isn't that great? Because see, what that means is that Jesus has a unique place on his team for you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you. All of us. He's got plans only for you. So instead of yielding to the temptation to judge others in the church who don't share our area of service, we should step back and wonder at the Savior who's put together such a great team. And we should rejoice in the hope, wow, I have no skill in choir. And I am so glad we have a choir, and I'm so glad there's other people who can do it. Right? That's what we should be thinking. Instead of, why aren't they in my priority? Thank God someone takes up this, this that's important but not my priority. Now, what hope, if we would focus on Christ's priorities, we could have? Because God's that specific in his love for you. He doesn't just forgive you and say, okay, go have a good life. No. He says, here is the life I have laid out for you. Go enjoy it. you believe that? See, these mean preachers in Rome didn't get that. But Paul did. Paul realized Jesus wants Paul in jail. So Paul said, I will serve in jail. And seeing the gospel advance because of it gave him joy, even while in that difficulty, even while in that conflict. So, have you ever been hurt by someone in the church? Has a brother or sister caused you pain? That's hard. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just sail over that junk when it happens? 
Well, the gospel gives us that ability, and that's where Paul ends up here. He says, the gospel in our joy. See, the conflicts with other Christians hurt. The difficulties are difficult, oddly enough. So the only way we can have joy in them is to see how the gospel is advancing through them, the ways God's kingdom is being built. Otherwise, taking one for Christ's team is just no fun. Paul gets that. And he has joy because he doesn't care about Paul's kingdom being built. Look at what he says. Look at me at verse 18. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. See, Paul says, So what? I'm on Christ's team. His gospel is proclaimed. I'm good. And that sentiment is the very nature of gospel joy. If you can have that kind of freedom, be like, you know what, this junk's happening. I'm on Christ's team, and we're winning. Woohoo! That was kind of weak, woohoo. I know, I'm sorry. I'm a Presbyterian. It's the best I got. So, in, in my reading this week, I came across this great explanation uh, from this guy named Frank Fielman. Turns out he was one of John Mark's professors in the seminary. Probably why John Mark is so much smarter than I am. Anyway, here's what he says about joy. Frank says this. He says, Joy is not the self-satisfied delight that everything is going our way, but the settled peace that arises from making the gospel the focus of life and from understanding that God is able to advance the gospel under the most difficult circumstances. That's where joy comes from. Things don't have to be going your way in your life. You know, God's gospel is going God's way. I can have joy. So Paul says the gospel is advancing. People are bold to proclaim the truth. Yeah, some of them are jerks, but Jesus' team is winning with, even with the jerks, and that brings Paul joy, and it brings them joy. And that joy, in turn, fuels more boldness, so the gospel is expanding. Oh, dear flock, I wish I could help you to feel this. If you and I would simply believe that God loves us, that he has given his absolute best for us in his beloved son, that through Jesus he sees us as righteous, that he is perfectly pleased with us because of the work of his son, that he holds us in his heart and sits us in his lap like a father does for his children. In other words, if we would believe the gospel, we would not only have joy, but we would be the bold witnesses we so wish we were. Oh, see, the gospel anchors us in God's love. And therefore, it frees us from the opinions of others, and that brings us joy. So, you know, in a world of Supreme Court rulings that make you kind of scratch your head and go, huh? International events that cause the fear of war. If you'll forgive me, bumbling politicians who seem to be clearly out of their league, yet another Christian leader publicly blowing it, and the world taking more and more pot shots at God's people. In that world, our joy will only remain intact if we remember that God is in control and that wherever Christ is preached, the gospel is advancing. I want to give you a very tangible example of this. I want you to recognize this and own this. Those of you who haven't been following current events, it's hard to see God's providence in the world if you don't follow current events, but, so please do. About a month ago, 
It looked as if the pro-Russia government in the Ukraine was going to massacre a pro-democracy um, revolt, a protest really, a revolt that had been going on for months in the center of Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. They had been there for months. They finally had enough. The police did their job. They were, they were ordered to take them down. The police kind of attacked, almost like a military situation. Eighty people were killed, and then the police retreated. In, in the subsequent hours and days, many of the police switched sides and started defending the protesters. Now, there are several factors. I don't want to oversimplify this, that, but, but one of the biggies that is reported, if you know where to look, was there is this special group of men among the protesters. They were there serving and even protecting them. I have a picture of one of these men. I want to show you. I love this guy. I put this up on Facebook a couple, a couple weeks ago. That's pastoral care in downtown Kiev right there. It's a Greek Orthodox priest. I found this picture in several places, and I cannot find the man's name. I would love to tell you his name. Now, the Orthodox Church is kind of weird. They would say the Presbyterians are kind of weird. There's some things they do that we don't quite agree with, but they do hold to the Apostles' Creed. And so, in general, for the most part, we could say they get Jesus. They're brothers. And what happened was men like this priest, who was definitely not alone, the police refused to attack their priests. They had second thoughts about who was right and who was wrong. If there's no priests over here and all the priests are over here, hmm. You see, when the nation of Ukraine was imprisoned under the Soviet Union for 80 plus years, the church was very suppressed, obviously. But before that, Ukraine was a profoundly religious country. After the fall of Rome, when Western culture was dying in its infancy and when the church had lost most of its good theology, most of the stuff that you love about Christianity was preserved in the Eastern Greek churches and rediscovered in the Renaissance and Reformation. They have been the stewards of God. And Ukraine, the modern country of Ukraine, was majorly a part of that. Most of the pro-democracy demonstrators were out there. If you actually read the interviews, they saw themselves as pro-religious protesters as much as they were pro-democracy protesters. And when the government fell a miracle, you know, two and a half, three weeks ago, it was seen by the man on the street not as a political victory, but as a victory for the church. In fact, if you followed the current events, the current interim pastor is an ordained Baptist minister. The current interim president, excuse me, is an ordained Baptist minister. How cool is that? Now, currently, obviously, Russia is trying to plunge the whole area, maybe the world, into war. So there's difficulties. There's, there's conflicts. But the sources that are out there that I've checked say that the churches there are just so full of joy because they see God has brought down this dictatorship and let his churches arise. The gospel is advancing. See, if we're living... For Christ's team, not our team. If we're seeking to build God's kingdom rather than our own kingdom, we will find ourselves having joy, even in the midst of our conflict, even in the midst of our difficulties. So the question to ask yourself as we close is this, do you want a source of joy in your difficulties? Do you need to be set free from this frantic quest, perhaps, to be the man or the woman? to be the best, the first, to have others think you're great. That freedom's available for you.
because the junk of life is not going to stop. There may be respites, but we need to recognize that the new normal for Christians in America is that we as a church community are going to have increasing difficulty and frustration and stress. And because we're human, even in the midst of those trials from outside enemies, we're still going to have conflicts with each other. That's not going to stop either. Now, you can pout, you can complain, you can call everyone else a hypocrite, you can be bitter, or you can have joy by resting in Christ. Because when you place your faith and trust in Christ daily, when you live for His priorities instead of your own daily, you will have joy, even in the midst of incredible junk. Paul has it. Our Ukrainian brothers and sisters have it. You can have it. Believe the gospel yet again and have joy. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we do thank you that in the midst of a crazy life where we've chosen to be busy, where we try to sate our souls with activity, We thank you that you were there. In a world of pressure and pain and difficulty and disappointment and trial, you are there. Lord, we pray. We pray for those of us who know you already. We pray, Father God, that you would lift our eyes yet again to Christ and that we would see, that we would believe that the joy of seeing the gospel win is worth the pain of taking one for your team. Would you give us that joy? Would you allow us to see the gospel advance by making us the bold witnesses we wish we were? Build us up in our faith and make us more like Christ through this text. And Father, we pray for those who are here who do not know you. We pray that you would open their eyes to see Christ, that you would open their hearts to receive Christ, and you would open their mouth to confess Christ as Lord, that you would build your kingdom and draw in your saints. We ask that you would do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.